and all the Martians are dead. Oh! He talks about um, the prospect of another Martian attack and says that we would have a better chance now because they've lost that element of surprise. He also I'm not quite sure it was surprise that enabled them to wipe you out in three weeks. I think it's probably far more <laughs> the overwhelming strength in weaponry. <laughs> Apparently they might have headed off to Venus instead. Uh, there's been so many <laughs> green trails. I love that. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Where the atmosphere is made out of sulfuric acid and there's a constant hurricane force gale wind covering the planet 400 miles an hour. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And this is part five. And the final part of the read-through of War of the Worlds, the War of the Worlds, although um, next week we will be returning to the War of the Worlds to look at the the different retellings of H.G. Wells' classic, from the sort of music to the films to the radio programmes that cause mass panic across the United States of America. That'd oh, I've forgotten about that. Week. Yeah. So, as you can tell, I've really done my my preparation for that, for next week's festival of adaptations. I'm going to have to yeah. dig in. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've completely forgotten about that one. Yeah, so this week it's um, the rest of the book. So from the chapter called The Man on Putney Hill to the end. And uh, then we'll be doing Gill reviews as well. And let me tell you, we've got some good ones. <laughs> a range of opinions on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Um, I can't wait for this. I love it when we do a classic and then we find out that half of the people on the internet consider it to be less sophisticated than Spot the Dog Goes to the Carnival. <laughs> if you want to add your own review, obviously you, you miss the just missed the podcast now, but um, we're still happy to read them and um, we could always just sneak them into the, the little bonus, oh, yeah. bonus bit next week as well. So, um, it's for the Shark Clips, Matt. I yeah. think we can we we can open it up. So it's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmo.com. Um sharkliveroilpodcast at gmo.com or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroil. And uh, yeah, if you send in a late review, we'll just push it to next week. Um but that is the final deadline. There'll be no more talk <laughs> of War of the Worlds after next There'll week. Be no extensions. I think well that's a bit optimistic though, Matt, isn't it? I think we, we managed to do callbacks to books that we read on this podcast sort of four years ago. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, yeah. I think there may be more discussion of War of the Worlds, but not in a scheduled sort of a way. <laughs> I mean, if you yeah. do want to flick through the, the Black catalogue as well, we we have, if you go on the website, sh- uh, um, it's we've got all the podcasts up there arranged by book, so you can browse through all the book titles and, and just pick the ones that, you know, you're interested in. Um, and then you can either download them or, you know, search them out on the old podcast feed. Right, that's enough of that. Let's get into War of the Worlds, part five, The Man on Putney Hill. Putney Hill, Dave. We're not mm. straying out of London. It's, uh, so. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's also not the most <laughs> dramatic thing, is it? Like, there's a fine line to be walked between naming things in a dramatic context with a sort of uh, kind of subtly banal wording you know, to kind of really make the contrast between this mad stuff that's happening and the fact that it's happening to normal people. But I have to say, the man on Putney Hill really does kind of... It lacks for drama, I think it'd be fair to say. The bloke on the corner having a cigarette. The corner (laughs) shop, you know, like... 
Yeah. Well, what, what this bloke lacks for in um, the name of his residence, he more than makes up for in the dramatic stuff that he says. So let's get to him. Um, at first, the narrator hides in this house on Putney Hill, has a bit of time to think for the first time in ages, scavenges a bit of food for the first time in ages. It gives him a chance to think about the curate, um, the last person who, uh, last character who wandered into this story and was dismissed. Um, <laughs> and it did not work out well for him. <laughs> no. uh, the narrator has no remorse um, about uh, beating him over the head and leaving him to die with the Martians. <laughs> he says that if there's any regrets, he just regrets not leaving him earlier at Halliford. Fucking um, hell. Yeah. <laughs> What do we think about this? Is this reasonable behaviour on his, on his part? Is this realistic depiction of a kind of traumatic response to being in a war zone, or is he just a colossal bastard? What do you think? <laughs> I think you also have to factor in just how annoying the cure was. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is true. That is true. Ethics are applicable differently in situations depending on whether or not the person you're talking to is a flaming knob end. That is accurate. <laughs> Um, he he prays. Um, for, he's obviously still trying to get back to Leatherhead, but he prays, um, hoping that um, his wife has died quickly um, and hasn't had to experience this. So it gives you it's a sense of the hopelessness. One, yeah, worth worth remembering for uh, the final chapter as well. Um, yeah, but yeah, he he continues pushing on towards Leatherhead, and he comes across this guy with a cut, brandishing a cutlass, shouting that this is his territory. And um, and, and the narrator's like, "Oh, don't worry, I, I'm off to Leatherhead." And the guy with the cutlass just looks at him and goes, "Hang on a minute, it is you." And it turns out the guy with the cutlass <laughs> is the artilleryman from earlier earlier in the book. I love how failsafe that Brought is. Together. In city of, I don't know how many people were in that part of the world at that time, but honestly, I meet somebody who's really intent on getting to Leatherhead, and then I meet somebody else three three weeks later who's still intent on getting to Leatherhead. I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's you. Only one person could care this much about getting to a fairly uninteresting <laughs> suburb of South <laughs> London. It's you, Leatherhead bloke. <laughs> um, he recogn- The artilleryman recognises him. Um, and he says, I nearly didn't because your hair's gone completely grey. And it looks like uh, he's, he's sort of the narrator's physically changed um, over, the last, over the last few weeks. The stress. And this, has ha- this does happen in rare circumstances, isn't it? Um, ages yeah. people really quickly, as in like over a matter of weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, so I've, I've seen that a couple of times. Not like full on going completely grey, but people sort of acquiring grey hairs in circumstances of extreme stress. Mm. Um, but uh, but it is, it is kind of interesting to me that three weeks hiding in a basement has basically caused this guy to go completely grey. I would be minding to ask whether it's still plaster dust from the collapsing ceiling. <laughs> yeah, that could well be actually, couldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you've gone completely grey, man. <laughs> being being an appearance proud something of a peacock. I said, surely not, sir. Dusted <laughs> off my head to reveal my my <laughs> glorious jet black locks. <laughs> yeah, maybe because it's Victorian. He's so concerned about his appearance when he's been scavenging. He's he's managed to get new, like sort of like clean clothes on, but hasn't bothered mm. to have a wash. So he's just took <laughs> all the plaster dust <laughs> off his clothes, but it's still on his still on his head. <laughs> I love that idea. Did I forget to? I thought it felt a bit weird up there. <laughs> now the artillery man has a theory. Yeah. He basically says um, the 
you can see the Martians over near Hampstead and they're learning to fly apparently they're sort of working on some flying machine and Eddie says you know we're beat we're finished and this is slowly sort of dawning on the narrator too as we said for, with mm. the, the prayer for hope it was quick for my wife um, and the artillery man says this is sort of the Martian takeover from what he can see is being done in two phases the first was the smashing phase which was what happened when they first landed, you know, disrupting the communications, um, crushing any resistance, and they're so, they're moving on to the capture and keep for food phase, um, which hasn't really started yet. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting theory, isn't it? The sort of they came here for a bit of a hunting jolly, <laughs> um, and kind of, and it is also an interesting angle on the ongoing. We're really not sure still how aware H.G. Wells was or is of his kind of class location and like yeah. how much he's sort of critiquing it. But honestly, turning this into a satire on fox hunting at this point would be really funny. <laughs> well, Look at us, they're chasing us. Not only are the Martians chasing the humans across the landscape of Surrey, but they've also put on these really weird red coats <laughs> and these sort of absurd tweed over things and they've got these massive dogs the size of planes that are chasing us I don't really know what was going on anyway the author went nuts <laughs> the artilleryman um, says actually in, in relation to class he, he says uh, you know everyone's panicking now civilization's over everyone's just running around um, he thinks you know those with money got away as we saw you know if you could pay your way onto a ship you could get out to France and he sort of looks a little guiltily at the narrator when he says this. Basically, like, those of money like you could get away, and I've been stuck here, so I'm making the best of it. Um, yeah. And I just like this yeah. little touch of um, awareness of of class difference here from the artilleryman as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's kind of striking to me that that wasn't something that the narrator dug into. You know, because mm. he has kind of dug into, at various points, the interesting philosophical underpinnings of what's going on and he even sort of at the end of the book he describes himself like he describes his his profession as being is it like philosophical journalist or writer on philosophical ideas or something yeah like he sees himself as a man of ideas but then he's confronted with somebody saying money is the only difference between my position and your position and he just kind of goes well obviously (laughs) moving on (laughs) really really weird yeah, I I think it's interesting that the narrator, yeah, is presented as the guy, uh, sort of his profession is ideas, and he meets this sort of working class artilleryman, and it's the artilleryman who's got all the ideas, and the narrator's just sort of like, hmm, interesting. Um, <laughs> Moving along. There, there, there is a little, um, a, a slight sense of wonderment from the narrator that someone so poor can have so many ideas. I did get that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's like him coming across an ape that can talk, as far as he's concerned. He's like, good heavens, do you know, I don't think he'd been to Oxford or Cambridge or even bloody Durham, but he was putting together sentences and saying things that were really quite diverting for a moment or two. <laughs> because if you yeah, if you remember in the, in the first few chapters when um, all the people in Woking to show up to look at the Martians, he, uh, he says then there wasn't much talking because... You know, this lot, they don't know anything anyway about astronomy or <laughs> <laughs> Martians. <laughs> and they overuse the letter A and the letter H in the word about. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the artilleryman has a, a really interesting um, idea about what's going to sort of happen from this stage onwards. And he says, you know, now what's going to happen is the survivors are going to be captured, sort of a mass capture, if you like, and people mm. will slowly get used to it in the same way, like, you know, cattle is domesticated. Um, yeah. Maybe even uh, religion will sort of develop where we start submitting to the Martians and almost sort of, you know, as our overlords, maybe some yeah. Martians will, will keep us as pets and grow attached to to us. Um, yeah. And and also this the sort of the, ex- the submission to the Martians will be complete when you see groups of human human hunters going sort of rounding people up. Yeah. I thought this was a really dark but really interesting um, sort yeah. of uh, vision of, of what the future could be like here if the Martians continued to take over. Yeah, and I think, first of all, I think this is this is a kind of accurate flight of fancy. It's very Victorian in that it's a flight of fancy where the, basically the narrator just puts the entire novel on hold for four pages while this guy expounds <laughs> his philosophical theories. Like, I, I do appreciate that in, in subsequent years people have worked out how to do the novel of ideas with slightly more deftness. Um, but I think it is an interesting idea, and I think it has some purchase. I think people do generally. I mean, so you look at things like Vichy France, for example, um, mm. and 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 you know uh, other nations that were conquered during the Second World War. Just just for an example, the hundreds of other conflicts in which that occurred, um, and people do kind of go along with things because it it does take something very extraordinary to resist, um, and most people just aren't aren't capable of it. Um, by comparison, so I think, you know, so in Vichy France, for example, you would have some people were going along with it because they were mental and genuinely believed that fascism was the way forward. And, you know, I, for one, welcome our, our new Nazi overlords. But so many other people were just like, well, what am I going to do? I don't have any weaponry. I don't have any purchase here. You know, I'm just I'm just under this system. Mm. And and so I find that really, I mean, depressing for sure, uh, but also quite realistic um, but one of the one of the upsides I found from from the fact that he does do this sort of and now I will insert an essay um, kind of approach uh, to to playing with an idea um, is that because he doesn't dig into it in terms of character or plot or do any scenes showing this or anything like that um, it's just this like unbelievably overstuffed treasure hoard of ideas for people who were going to come along in subsequent years to actually write fiction about this and there's loads of things you know really examining what would happen in the aftermath of an alien invasion you know when you do have your kind of collaborators and um uh i I, the best one of those is um you ever played half-life 2 the computer game uh, no, no, but I've, I've heard it. I've heard it's, oh, a, it's Matt, a good you one. Must. Yeah. You must. You absolutely must. <laughs> Isn't that one of those ones that really of... eats up your time? Like you could spend. Well, no, like... no, because because it's almost unique in video game history in that it is a properly put together narrative and a properly put together action experience. Mm. Um, and interestingly, actually, because we've already commented on how this book has inspired some things in the Mist, the Stephen King book that we did a while back. Um, Half Life was originally inspired by the Mist. Um, oh. But I think it um, Half-Life 2 uh, expands the story a little bit and has this kind of thing where you have human collaborators, um, you know, humans who appear to be working for uh, working for these otherworldly beings who have kind of I- invaded or engaged. Yeah. And um, 
and it's really powerful kind of storytelling thing, which H.G. Wells essentially came up with, gift-wrapped, and just left, saying, there you go, there you go, <laughs> fiction writers of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. No, no, it's on me, I insist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some, it's a really fascinating sort of idea, isn't it? Um, the <laughs> We then move on to the artilleryman's solution, um, buckle up because um, it involves a little bit of eugenics. Um, so he says, "Start us, start an underground civilization. Get down, um, get down in the sewers where they can't find us. Start again," um, which is a great idea. Do you get the impression with this, by the way, that what he's that, that he's kind of just been waiting for this anyway? That he's always sort of had one eye on the sewers, <laughs> going, "You could live down there." Yeah, you could, I'm, I'm. I tell you what, first chance I get, I'm living in the sewers. That's what's <laughs> happening. I am going to live in the sewers. You think he's a prepper? Like, uh, think, yeah, like he is, but a very Victorian <laughs> prepper. He hasn't actually done anything to prepare, except yeah. internally, where he's like, kind of, the first chance I get, I am going off the fucking grid. It's gonna <laughs> be amazing. <laughs> um, here's where I think he goes um, off the rails a bit. He says so. This is how we're going to get our underground society. We're only going to let the toughest and best in. Um, the useless and cum- the useless, cumbersome and mischievous have to die. So kill them. <laughs> the useless, cumbersome. <laughs> he really has internalised. This is classic petty bourgeoisie, isn't it? He's absolutely internalised the language of his own oppression. And he's now in this kind of like, the useless, what is it? The, the useless, the Cumbersome dull and, and the- mischievous. The cumbersome and the mischievous. Was there ever a more Victorian phrase for the wrong sort of people, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, he also says, um, you know, that they've got to die and they're not allowed to, to sort of breed either because this is a, quite a chilling quote. It's a sort of disloyalty, after all, to taint the race, he says. Oh, and this is the sort of thing that can be put in the mouth of a, like, quasi-sympathetic or at least definitely not antagonistic character at the end of the 19th century and that this is actually i would argue that that line is a great example of um one of the things we've we've said before about how much this prefigures what happened in the world over the next 50 years and one of them is the fact that it was apparently completely appropriate and in fact i've read somewhere this was a mainstream view by the time you got to the 1930s. Eugenics Mm. and the idea that, like, purifying the race by not allowing lesser persons to breed. This wasn't... It was absolutely a Nazi philosophy, but it was a Nazi philosophy that happened to be shared by people all the way across the the political spectrum. And again, it's this really um, outcome-focused thing where you're only worth what you make or you're only worth what you've done or you're only worth what you have, um, which I think is... The shift from that is one of the major and best changes in mindset that we've seen since the sort of mid-20th century is that everybody has gone, uh, yeah, that's not cool because what happened when we all believed that was millions of people got slaughtered by their governments. Um, And how heartbreaking that it took that for a sentence like this to go from being acceptable in the mouth of a character to being a clear sign of a complete bastard as it is today. Yeah, it is so interesting, isn't it, that in... Uh, that line or this little bit just stands that jars so so suddenly with the rest of it because it's yeah it, when it was written it, it it wouldn't have stood out and now like you're going oh, okay yeah okay what, what, wait what what, what, the, what <laughs> is the a disloyalty to what 
Yeah, <laughs> to take the what? to the race as well, and and yeah. yeah, it really does kind of knock you sideways, doesn't it? And it's yeah, really, really fascinating little little kind of piece of of surprise that's just kind of chucked in there. I also, do you get the sense again that he's been sort of he's really been waiting for this at this point? Like you're like, oh yeah. So it's eugenics, is it? That's that's your handle on all of this. That's you've just been sitting there thinking about traitors to the human race this entire time, and now you've got a chance. Well, I, sir, will be going to Leatherhead. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we move back into sort of a bit more sanity here. So he then talks about we're going to start schools down there, get smarter. Um, <laughs> like here, he's like, and they'll learn. The kids will learn stuff. Not. Not stuff like poetry. They'll learn science, and then we'll, you know, stuff that's actually useful. And um, again, and we'll... I say, geez, this is, this is such a comprehensively debunked way of understanding human activity. Well, except it's not. Like, I still think this is a lot of the way in which um, governments around the world understand the value of education. Is how much does it make you a productive human being? And I'm not, I'm not averse to that argument. But I, I would simply quote Winston Churchill, who I don't quote very often, but when um, when uh, the suggestion was made during the Second World War that um, uh, the departments that kind of uh, funded the arts should be defunded and that all the theatres should shut down, he basically said, yeah, but then what would we be fighting for? And mm. that, I think, is a very, very, very excellent argument against this idea that all you need to do is learn science and you'll flourish. Science is wonderful, science is beautiful, but human beings are not only about the information in their brains, they're also about the the life and their communities and their connections and their understandings. And all of that comes from art. Um, so this, while I, while I find this as laughable as the suggestion of eugenics, I think this idea is perhaps more on the wing today than the eugenics idea, and but it just as dangerous. Mm, and the, the, um, the sort of final... Uh, the culmination of all this sort of learning is um, is maybe we can get control of our own heat heat ray, yeah, and then you know it's our turn to do a bit of invading of our own planet, and yeah, we're back on top. What about that? <laughs> what do you think? All we need, all we need, is a bigger weapon because the chase for larger weaponry has never ended before <laughs> in a massive inferno of hubris. Definitely, let's make our own flipping, uh, our own death ray. <laughs> so anyway, at least it, it's an option. <laughs> <laughs> it's, is it really an option, though? Is that not it's like nine steps down the garden path of extreme implausibility? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that, that's, the, that's the big plan. I mean, at least it's a way back, I suppose. And yeah, no, absolutely. He says, you know, then he says, look, I've already made a start. Come downstairs. And they go down to the cellar. And he started the world's smallest tunnel, and it's taken him like two weeks. And this is where the narrator says, "This is where I have my first inkling of the gulf between his dreams and his powers." It's like he's a dreamer, but it's never going to happen. Yeah, if only he was upper middle class, he would have been fine. <laughs> um, he's also like he's not very practical. He's built this house like really far away from the sewers, and now he's going to tunnel to the sewers. And the narrator's like, why didn't you just get a house near the sewer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that would smell horrible, wouldn't it? I mean, do some thinking. <laughs> um, they spend a day working on this hole, take a break, 
they basically spend more time taking breaks than they do working on the whole. And again, the narrator realizes, yeah, this guy isn't going to be up to doing what he's dreaming. Um, yeah. Okay, this is this is an amazing little bit, which really it was a, was a was a, a surprise. Let me put it that way. They go up onto the roof and they look out over London, and someone gets the lights working in the Regent Street area. And the survivors have a massive party and everyone gets really drunk. And then sort of when the dawn comes up, there's just a Martian in a fighting machine just sort of standing there watching them. And it just sort of comes down and carries off around about 100 people who are too sort of drunk to resist and just sort of lying there in a stupor. Yeah. (laughs) This is amazing. Yeah. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's something that people say in a rhetorical sense, not in the sense of, let us eat and drink, for at about five o'clock tomorrow morning, when the hangovers really started to tickle in, we will be scooped away by an enormous killing machine from another world on three legs. Nobody thinks that what it, that's what it means, but for these, that is exactly what it meant. <laughs> I thought this was quite a chilling image, actually, that um, oh, shit, this, yeah. this, this Martian just, just watching... Just say like letting letting the humans you know have a one last party and then just just wandering in, picking up a hundred or so and carrying them off. It's actually the like prediction of what the artillery man said happening, isn't it? The sort yeah. of beginning of the domestication of humanity, if you like, to yeah. to become cattle. Bleak. Hmm. Um, they have a little party of their own um, up at the house: champagne, cigars, and cards. Um, a bit later on the narrator returns to the roof on his own and thinks about what he's doing, feels a traitor and thinks, you know what, this guy's never going to really amount to much. And he leaves. Interesting Sorry. little sort of dream. Uh, like It almost feels like he's had it. This has been a, a dream the last day, hasn't it? Like he's almost yeah. something, I, could, I believe it if he'd hallucinated the entire thing. Yeah, actually, yeah, I think that's a really solid read. Um, it's It's surreal, isn't it? And I can't work out if the fact that I'm not really connecting with it emotionally is the fact that the book's not trying to make me do that or that the book is weirdly written. You know, because mm. this could be a really weird little interlude of sort of surrealness and otherworldliness and kind of disengagement. But it doesn't feel that way for some reason. It mm. just, be- I suppose because it's all recounted in that very kind of flat, Victorian kind of matter of fact way the mm. description of an entire city risking its own life in order to get pissed just feels like oh aren't <laughs> humans weird uh, you know rather than kind of capturing the hopelessness that must have been that must have been a hand there you know yeah 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 no it, it is it, it, it is strange and he does have this very sort of classic Victorian almost emotionless retelling of something that's yeah, obviously very emotional, but it, it's part yeah. of what um, was seen to be like a, a strong quality, wasn't it? Not really yeah. being affected by even the worst, um, the worst things happening. Yeah, um, yeah. Chapter eight is Dead London. He, That's um, a he, great title, isn't it? Yeah, that title will shortly be used for a series of really cheap zombie fiction at a hundred pages apiece. <laughs> it's better than the man on Putney Hill, isn't it? Dead it is, Yeah, you see, he's inconsistent. He goes from one to the other. He goes from the quotidian to the dramatic. Yeah. Dead London's a great title. <laughs> so uh, he wanders through London. It's covered in black dust now. He describes it almost like a shroud covering yeah. uh, covering the, the sort of the dead city. 
Um, and he doesn't come across anybody else. It's it's completely dead and deserted. It feels like a city condemned, he says. And the only company he has is the sound of the, the Martians. You can hear one of the Martian machines making that cry that they were... Um, the only sort of sound that they make and it's sort of a, it's described it's, the word is oola like a, and it's just going ooh, ooh. yeah and he thinks it's haunting isn't it yeah yeah and he is drawn towards the sound because he's he's just this 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 is actually now is is where we start to feel a sense of just complete despair that he's got you know why am i still alive um when everybody else is dead and the, the London's just lying sort of dead and condemned. Um, yeah. He journeys on. He, he rests in the pub for a bit. Good good idea, just to sort of get his spirits up again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the way he describes it as well, where he's like sort of, I went into the pub and walked through the bar and just sat down on a horsehead sofa. There's just something about his description of it, which is suddenly like every Englishman recognises the pub and that the pub is a a restorative place. It's like uh, Shaun of the Dead, isn't it? Just go for the Winchester, wait for all this to blow over. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He journeys on, he sees one of the Martians standing on its own, on Mm. one of the tripods, standing alone, just calling. Uh, Carries on towards it. Some dogs run past him, like with some meat. And he's like, oh, how depressing. Gary's on walking. Uh, he <laughs> gets, gets a little bit Russian novel, doesn't it, at this point? <laughs> Anything that happens, he just looks at it and goes, oh, Gary's oh life is nothing. <laughs> how bleak. <You> know? <laughs> nothing else for it but to carry on walking. He, um, <laughs> he, he then comes across a crashed handling machine with a sort of splashed bloody cockpit. Um, this is the little spider machines, and he thinks, mm. "Oh, they must have, yeah, they've crashed one of the machines. What a shame for him!" Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, my heart bleeds. <laughs> Boo hoo. <laughs> the um, this isn't one of the Roombas, though, is it? Don't tell me one of the Roombas has bitten the dust. <laughs> no, no, no. Love those <laughs> little fringes. <laughs> um, as he's walking past this, the the calling from the machine just abruptly cuts off, and then there's just silence, and he sees another. Uh, still Martian on the top of Primrose Hill and mm. the silence is what suddenly makes it unbearable um, because he does feel the sort of emptiness and alone then yeah. and he just thinks oh fuck it I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna end it so he make he, he makes for them starts running towards the the Martian on Primrose Hill thinking I'm just gonna let it kill me I've had enough yeah. it's a proper like yeah. the doy moment yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um as he gets closer, he notices there are black birds circling the hood, and then he get he comes upon the the top of Primrose Hill, and it's a giant Martian encampment. This must be like the base, and all the Martians are dead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't creep up on it, does he? It's just like, oh, all right then, yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. What's happened, nice. Dave? Let me tell you, <laughs> it's only the bacteria that's killing them. <gasps> Thank you, common cold. <laughs> Dave, slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God and his wisdom had put upon this earth, is the quote. Hey, hey, there's a line. Um, What about that? <laughs> 
Well, it, again, he's not much of a one for either foreshadowing or sort of really building, you know, like using the structure of a story to give you a sense of building or ebbing tension, is he? He's just more like, and then it was all over. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. 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 I mean, you know, but from a from a non kind of literary perspective, I mean that kind of it makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? Like, you know, um, if there is, you know, it's possible for wars battles to end this quickly if something mm. really seriously goes wrong. You know, like um, uh, was it? It was Operation Barbarossa, wasn't it? The the uh, invasion German of invasion of yeah. of Russia, yeah, um, where they just didn't get to the oil fields enough. So there was just basically a kind of one week period where the tanks all stopped moving and didn't start moving again because they didn't have any fuel left for them. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, and it can just happen like that if you if you if you have that kind of strike at a really tender place. But it is a bit from a, as a reader, you're like oh. Because he's really despairing. Like, really, there's been no no upsides, no ebb and flow. It's just all been awful. And then you're like, oh, all right, well, cool. Yeah, great, <laughs> nice. Yeah, what a turnaround. <laughs> yeah, although, is it weird that he just sort of sees them and in his recounting of it, he just goes straight from, it was dead. They were all dead. Obviously, it was the bacteria. <laughs> Rather than being like, I had no idea what it was. Because he's been really good at keeping your focus on what he knows up yeah. to this point. And then it feels like at this point he's like kind of, and the solution was this. <laughs> you can almost hear the uh, the owner of the newspaper going, all right, Herbert. Yeah. Yeah, no, last last issue this week, mate. Yeah, sorry, can't go with it. No, no, no. Look, we've decided to change into romantic fiction. So unless you can put some sizzling gypsies in there. Yeah, no, no, sorry, mate. No, it's all over. Just wrap it up. Put a bow on it. Whatever you need to do. And it's, and you see him sitting at his desk, right, fucking fine then. And it turned out that they couldn't stand to catch a cold. The end. I got I got the feeling that the narrator was um like he what he was yeah, he was he has been telling it sort of sequentially and keeping you in the moment for all of it. And now it's got to this point and he's tried he's tried not to tell you, but then he just can't help himself because such a good bit of information is like and then we had no idea. It was it was the bacteria. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> I can't hold it in any longer. It was the bacteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's true, isn't it? That's that's the sort of thing where there's a guy that knows something and really wants you to know that he knows something and just can't keep it out of the conversation, even though it ruins the story that he's telling or whatever. He's still like kind of, yeah. So none of us knew what it was, but it, it was the bacteria. It was great. It was. I, I knew. I did you know? Because I knew. I was there. Yeah, yeah. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he describes the bacteria as our microscopic allies, and I just quite like. I like the idea. With I like what I like the idea is um, the sort of as the Martians arrive and start wreaking havoc, and we're all we've all had it, and there's just these little bacteria just going, oh, it's like that, is it? Well, <laughs> time to cowboy up. <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what kind of pain we're about to bring. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah i actually that made me think of um of like those kind of 1950s uh um informational kind of things you know the yeah. atom our close friend <laughs> <laughs> our invisible ally the bacterium <laughs> yeah um one of the things that's in this sort of uh big encampment is this flying machine that's still on the ground unfinished 
Um, it doesn't really describe what it looks like, so you have to sort of make your own, uh, come to your own sort of use your own imagination there. Yeah, um, I, I, that's quite telling as well. Exactly when this was published, right? Because it was published. I th- was it like eighteen ninety seven to eighteen ninety eight? I think yeah, was the just year before it was. flight. I was going to say that when was it that the Wright brothers flew? Was it eighteen ninety nine? Yeah, it's like within a few years. Yeah, so he must have known what they were. You know, the, the rough, uh, <laughs> the well, gist of how know, you would, do it. Would he have done though? I feel like if people in the UK had known that at that point in the British Empire, they would all have been working hand over fist to try and beat the Americans at it. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, oh no! So it's nineteen o three. So it's sort of yeah. four or five years later. Yeah. Yeah. Intr- oh yeah, yeah. So, so they, so yeah. He basically, says they've got a flying machine, but doesn't go any any further. <laughs> yeah, they had this amazing thing. It's like, um, like you have these days with the uh, techno babble in Star Trek, in it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, we can travel through space and time quicker because of the crystals. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the flux capacitor in in Back to the Future. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. But he doesn't. It's really interesting to me that H.G. Wells, for all the innovations he did bring to science fiction, he didn't work out the innovation of techno babble by just making it up. Like he was just like, then there was a flying machine, which was a machine that could fly, which I can't describe to you for reasons. <laughs> Moving on. Um, when the narrator realizes that the Martians are dead, he he sort of veers from despair into this sort of it's almost like a love letter to London, like oh London, you beautiful <laughs> city of wonder, um, city of wonder and surprisingly unfightable bacteria. I always <laughs> knew the sewers would be the making of us. <laughs> yeah, and um, so it's full of like hope and joy. So I think he sends up a quiet prayer, sort of quietly trying to recant that. Um, that that prayer he sent up earlier <laughs> yeah. saying, I hope my Sorry. wife got incinerated quickly. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. Uh, hello. Uh, I may, I don't know if you've managed to process it yet. I'm not entirely sure of your systems for the paperwork. But, uh, I, I mentioned previously that I'd like my wife to be dead. And um, circumstances having changed, I'd, I'd really rather she was still alive. Please. <laughs> uh, we move on to chapter nine, right? Yeah, chapter nine, wreckage. So, um, <laughs> this, so, I got a bit confused at this point because I was like, "All oh, right, so it's over then." And actually, the end line of that previous chapter was, it was like quite dramatic. Hmm. So I was looking at it, going, "All right, cool, so, so it's done." Yeah, and then he's like, "No, no, there's more. There's going to be wreckage and an <laughs> epilogue." Yeah, so he um, apparently. The narrator takes the next three days in some kind of like blackout fugue state, like uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad. He sort of he just <laughs> staggers around, <laughs> um, and he's looked after by this family who sort of take him in and feed yeah. him um, while yeah. he sort of comes around. So he's in such shock, he just sort of he just checks out for three days. This is quite an interesting, like little wrinkle. Yeah. Um, Oh, we have the um, this is the the War of the Worlds version of Independence Day moment, where telegrams are sent out to cities all over the world, going hooray! <laughs> it, l- l- and it turns out this this has literally been a London thing. Everywhere else in the world has just been carrying on regardless, with no sign of any Martians. They've just 
all descended on London, which I thought was just hilarious. That's amazing. Which place should we go for? So it really was. They were just like, I've heard about this Woking, and let me be entirely clear on this from all the way across the gulfs of space. Fuck Woking. Let's let's have it. Let's do it. No, it says uh, Martian economists say house prices in Woking are going through the roof in the next 100 years. So that is where we've got to be. <laughs> That's where we've got to go. That's brilliant. The Martians are travelling across inter- interplanetary space in order to speculate on the London property market. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think actually that genuinely the reason he did it is this sort of belief as looking at it as, as London the centre of the the British Empire the centre of the world and I think the, what H.G. Wells genuinely thought here is if you're going to have an invasion of Earth obviously you just hit London yeah, which is once you take in London, it, it, yeah it, it just, just, just um, it, it's a really interesting comment on how Victorian England saw itself isn't it yeah um, very very much, great. well and I compare it to sort of end of the 20th century America right, where yeah. like uh, for some reason, the example that springs to mind this time is Godzilla, the awful 1998 Godzilla movie, where like the fact that Madison Square Garden is full of Godzilla eggs is is supposed to be this like, my God, that's it. The world will be over because of the everything that's happening in New York City, which, if you think about it, is a fucking island. Like, that's the best possible place to try and contain any kind of weird alien creature invasion. But mm. again, it's because it's you know the world's capital. It's this. It's this thing where you know. Well, if if New York falls, who can stand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So telegrams all around. Hooray! The, the, the Martians Hooray. are dead. Yeah. We didn't even send a telegram to the French telling them how to do it and have them sitting there going, "Well, it's about bloody time, isn't it? How do we deal with these guys?" <laughs> oh yeah, because they've nothing to deal with. They've just been, you know, eating the baguettes and frying the garlic quite happily. No problems at all. <laughs> <laughs> and the more things change, the more things stay the same, Matt. <laughs> do you reckon um, Mrs. What was she called? Mrs. Elphinstone just returns a wreck. Like I've seen things. I've seen things over there. <laughs> I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I've seen the French. <laughs> yes, you're all a bit traumatized over here from the Martians, but believe me, it's nothing compared <laughs> to what lies you. across the Let channel. Let me tell you, they don't even have seats on the toilets in the campgrounds. I mean, what the hell? Um. Anyway, um, it's not all good news. Leatherhead has been flattened by the heat ray, completely destroyed. So um, Bad days. Bad days. Yeah, so, so the narrator begins his sad journey home. I can almost imagine that bit. You know, like in Arrested Development, where they have that little piano music as they walk away sadly. I now want to go back and read the entire book imagining George Michael Bluth in a waxed moustache <laughs> and a bowler hat as the narrator of this book. I think that will cause it to become 9,000% funnier. Uh, the rebuilding is already going on, though, now, as, as London starts to recover. And you'll be delighted, Dave. The Daily Mail's back in publication. Um, front page news. The first <laughs> I wondered if we were going to... I wondered if we were going to comment on the fact that the Daily Mail was back in circulation at that point. I was like, oh, good. oh, oh well, thank God. Thank God the best of us has survived. Front page, Dave. 
um, we've discovered flight. So um, the you know what I think you and I both know perfectly well that the morning after a recently repelled alien invasion, the front the front page of the Daily Mail would not be about something hopeful to do with the future. It would be to do about immigrants and how they're ruining our country. <laughs> so no, but this is um, apparently some scientists of uh, Mister Scientist has uh, has gone down into the into the pit. I had, a, I had a poke around at this flying machine that the Martians have been tinkering with, and we've discovered how to do it. I assume and we've also it out. discovered heat rays now as well, which is slightly less slightly less good for humanity. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> the the he he gets back to uh, Woking he, on his on his journey back. He he, he gets back to the uh, Horsell Common. And there's now the cylinder's still there, but there's now a Union flag over it. And I was like, "Oh, that's good. Yeah, there's a big old <laughs> British flag plunked on the top that's of that amazing. thing." Mate. What should we do first? This is like um, Treasure Island, isn't it? Where the first thing anybody wants to do is put up the Union flag over something and just be <laughs> like, "Well, now we're here, of course." <laughs> yeah, it's like it reminded me of. There's a famous quote um, from one of the uh, members of the. Uh, Labour government straight after the uh, Second World War, talking about the um, like nuclear wa- nuclear warheads, and saying, "Right, if these things exist, we need one with a fucking British flag on it as soon as possible." <laughs> that, that, actually, that was exactly it, wasn't it? That, yeah. yeah, that is exactly the situation that's at hand. Mm. Um, so yeah, quickly claiming all the technology possible, <laughs> not wasting any time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is mine. This is mine. All this is mine. <laughs> he gets back to he goes back through Byfleet and Maybury. He sees the remains, like the skeleton of the horse, um, and he sort of remains of that cart that he drove off the road. I do like how he retraces his steps here, and we see sort of you know, the reminders of what happened. Um, no sign of the landlord. That there was um, the body of that landlord he came across. He's been buried. Yeah, um, but the but the the horse has been stripped to the bone, basically, hasn't it? And that's like that's again yeah. one of these really sort of uh, arresting images. He gets back to his house, which is still there. Um, he can still see the muddy footprints of that he, that the narrator and the artilleryman made going up and down the stairs that night. Which is interesting. It's like, these are just little echoes, aren't they, of what happened? Yeah, I'm not quite sure that it's earned that kind of retrospective chapter mm. at the end. Like, there's a there's, this really works in some fiction, um, like really like epic long form fiction. Um, like, what's a good example of it? <laughs> epic long form fiction. For some reason, the first thing that I think of is the the video game Grim Fandango, which is a Stone Cold classic, by the way, um, uh, where the structure of it is that later in the game you end up revisiting things from earlier um, earlier in the game, and you really feel this sense of, like, elegiac kind of, like, oh, I remember being here. But it's because you've spent such a long time in that place previously. Um, yeah. I, I will say that the more obvious cultural touchstone for this, and I, I'm kind of a little bit proud and a little bit ashamed that I only got to it second, is Lord of the Rings, Dave. Lord of the Rings is the one where they do this the most, honestly. But, um, <laughs> but there is this thing of returning to the place you've come from and, and feeling this sense of how much has changed and, you know, looking at familiar things but seeing how different everything has become. Um, is really powerful, but in a 120-page book, I'm not quite sure you've earned it. <laughs> you know, doesn't have that yeah. same impact for me. What did you think of it? Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed the uh, 
just these little callbacks. It just, um, I don't know, it was a nice way just to sort of round off the rest of the book. I, I agree that it's, there hasn't been as, there hasn't been a great deal of change since this has happened, actually. A lot of it is, oh, look at all these things that are exactly the same, I suppose. But yeah, you get the same in Lord of the Rings where they go back to, um, although, I suppose in Lord of the Rings they go back to Hobbiton and like it's been taken over by that. Yeah, Solomon. yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of, yeah. Whereas I suppose the opposite is happening. He, he's sort of just remarking on all these things that are still... I don't know. It, yeah, it's very different, isn't it? They're just reminders of what happened, really, rather than, um, you know, how things are different because I'm different now. Um, as he's standing inside the house thinking, oh, damn it, you know... I miss my yeah. wife. He hears this yeah. voice outside saying, no, no, nobody escaped but you. And he, he walks, he looks outside and there's his cousin talking to his wife. Weird, isn't it? As yeah, an I ending. Mean, I, I mean, I think it's sort of his cousin like saying, oh, you know, I think he's comforting rather than putting the moves on her. But uh, anyway, he's like... <laughs> <laughs> but it is weird, though, isn't it? Because it's like, where does this voice... Has he finally gone crackers? Because that would be a great ending if you really dug into it a little bit, where he like, absolutely loses his grip just at the very point when he's about to be reunited with the, with the woman, you know, his his love for whom has fueled him through this entire apocalypse. Hmm. Um, you know, if he just hears himself talking to himself as though somebody else is talking to him. That's dramatic, and that's great. But all it turns out to be is, like... I don't know, like he's just hearing things. And then his wife's there, so it's fine. No, no, I think, and... I think it's, I think it's a, a sort of an extraordinary coincidence that his, his wife and his cousin have, have come back to the house at the same time to see if he's still alive. And his cousin's saying to his wife, no, you're the only one who got out. And he, he overhears that and then sees them both. Yeah, you know I mean... I mean it's yeah I, I don't really know what to make of it it's weird isn't it like it's it's sort of it's it it almost it's not quite as disappointing as this but it is almost as if at the end of the mist what happened was he you know they like they 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 drive and then a breeze blew up and blew the mist away and everything was fine again yeah <laughs> like that that that's what it would be like you know and <laughs> and it's like it's not quite as bad as that but it is a slightly weird note to to land the chapter on Hmm. I quite liked it. I thought it's a happy ending. She's back. This this his his mute wife has returned, and we can all get on board with with that. <laughs> Regardless of putting aside the fact that it's um yeah the coincidence is quite quite amazing. But yeah, that is how we that is how we end wreckage. So we move on to chapter ten, the final chapter, the epilogue. Um, so this is just basically a summary of what's happened um, and sort of a little bit about sort of the future. So the narrator says, you know, bacteria, he, he says, he, he said in the chapter eight, Dead London, that bacteria was the cause. He now rolls that back ever so slightly and says, so bacteria was the most likely cause. It's not been proven yet, <laughs> but this is just what I think. <laughs> I love that so much. Like, what are you trying to do like you're trying to portray this this narrator character as a laughable 
uh, kind of sued because if you are, it's working. <laughs> but I don't think you're doing something that subtle. I think you're just like, oh yeah, it was definitely oh, it was weird. Like, is this an, <laughs> is this a case again where the the guy running the paper called him up and went, Herbert, Herbert, nobody understood the last bit, mate. No, you're gonna have to do as an epilogue. No, it's meaningless. What is it? Bacteria. What's a bacteria one? It's all oh, most people don't know that, do they, Mister Scientist? Go on, give us an epilogue. Fucking hell. I like. It. I do love it. I mean, yeah, he, he puts this theory forward in chapter eight as gospel, and then by chapter <laughs> ten he says, "Well, it feels like yeah, a scientist gone. Well, where's your evidence? Well, I've no evidence. I'm just saying that this just looks like this is the most likely cause. All right." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's it. That's why he describes himself as a philosopher of science at the end, rather than a scientist. Like, I'm not really a scientist, am I? I'm just a writer about it. Just, I just, I just sit and think, yeah. think my thoughts. He also says that this is a little. I think this is actually quite um, optimistic or quite good news um, in a way. But the the black smoke and the heat ray, the scientists have tried to work out how to recreate it but they can't. They basically burned a lab down when they tried to get the heat ray working. <laughs> but maybe it's best we don't know how to use these weapons. I suppose it yeah. might, be, might be worth us get, working out how to use them yeah, just in case these guys show up again in a few years' yeah. time. Yeah, um, yeah. The, there's a Martian spe- specimen. There's a body um, kept in the National History Mu- in the Natural History Museum, which I thought was brilliant. You can go and take a look at one. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of don't want to know what they've done to preserve it, though. Can you imagine pickled Martian and what that must smell like? <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Another little note on the, um, the just the world of the 19th century as well. He says there's a specimen in the Natural History Museum, and if you can't go and see it, there um, there are some really good drawings of it which are being sent around the country (laughs) yeah i don't know about you but i have always felt like drawings of things that have been described in prose are underwhelming like Mm. i need somebody to be a good enough writer to actually describe it to me Mm. um and and, i I, but back then i suppose if you didn't have photos you could be like well Mm. yeah fine we'll do a pencil sketch it'll be all right (laughs) he talks about um, the prospect of another martian attack and says that we would have a better chance now because they've lost that element of surprise, um, I suppose, yeah. Um, mm, he also I'm s- not quite sure it was surprise that enabled them to wipe you out in three weeks. I think it's probably far <laughs> more the overwhelming strength in weaponry. <laughs> I suppose if they could find something powerful enough to blow up the cylinders, then as soon as they land, you can just sort of shell the, the hell out of them. Um, yeah. But, yeah, um, I did like that. That that conjured an image at the end, which was quite pleasing for me, of just like Arnie standing with like quadruple barreled shotgun leveled at this slowly opening cylinder with that like <laughs> scraping noise, just like I still see you, you know. <laughs> yeah, welcome the, to Earth. <laughs> as the two disc-like eyes appear above the rim, this is. <laughs> 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 welcome to Earth. <laughs> um. Apparently they might have headed off to Venus instead. Uh, there's been some <laughs> green trails. I, I love that. <laughs> they, I know, isn't it brilliant? Because of what we know now about what Venus is like versus what people knew then. Like, yeah. I love the idea of the Martians being like, bloody hell, tell you what, Earth. I mean, the gravity was a bit of a piece of work. And I honestly thought we had them there, but they got some weird shit going on in terms of bacteria. Never mind, I quite like the sunsets. Anyway, let's try Venus. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? <laughs> Venus, where the atmosphere is made out of sulfuric acid and there's a constant hurricane-force gale wind covering the planet 400 miles an hour. 
and that the surface of the planet is made out of flipping molten lava and worse. <laughs> Imagine them landing going, oh, I'm not sure our IKEA flat pack furniture is going to work on this, to be honest. I always imagine landing, the cylinder lands, they start unscrewing it. It's like, Frank, go take a look. Fucking hell. What is it? You've got to see for yourself. This is, yeah, I, I, I don't honestly believe I can, uh, I can describe. Put it this way. Put it this way. I miss woking. Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. He he talks about this sort of. There is a bit of a, I suppose, sort of interstellar arms race now because humans do feel they need. They've got to work out their own way of exploring space and. being better prepared next time this this knowledge that you know no longer alone in the universe i do like yeah. the idea we didn't really talk much about this but um obviously this was pre-space travel so trying to work out how you'd actually get off a planet and, and make it to another the idea that hgl's had is basically a massive cannon which yeah. fires you off the um sort of yeah. from the face of the earth off from the face yeah. of mars um yeah. which sort of I think if you were to sort of apply scientific theory to it today you'd be able to prove why that would be impossible because the power you need to sort of fire at that speed you wouldn't be I think it would just cause a massive if you tried to contain it in a cylinder it'd cause a massive explosion just wherever you try and fire your your um your rocket oh I don't know that sounds like one for um xkcd you ever done x um xk uh what if the XKCD webcomic thing is brilliant. Like, it's basically because, so it's the guy who does this webcomic, XKCD, which is about um, science and maths and stuff, is um, used to work for NASA. And just occasionally people will send in, send in questions, basically going, you know, what if we did this kind of thing. And it's fascinating stuff. And I would quite like to see, I'd be surprised if he hasn't done it already, actually. Like, how big would the, the gun need to be to shoot something to escape Mars or Earth's orbit? Um, <laughs> Because cause you're right, it would be catastrophic. It would be blowing up Florida, basically, is what you'd need to do in order to get off. But, you know, that is that is that is the kind of solution that he's not frightened of going into. And mm. I appreciate it. Whatif.xkcd.com. Well worth it. Yeah. Uh, and we, find, we round the book off where he says, you know, he still has these flashbacks as to what happened. And um, it still feels strange to hold his wife's hand after both thinking the other was dead. Which is yeah. a bit of a sort of yeah, a, a good sort of little cap on the um, the strange Victorian romance that has been through the book. Um, the relationship yeah. between him and his wife is yeah. it's very nineteenth century, isn't it? And that that was a nice way to end it. Very much, it's very heartfelt, but not at all over demonstrative, which is to say, barely demonstrative at all. Except in so far as the whole book is him walking across London to find her, I guess. Yeah, but um. Uh, I quite liked it because these little moments of sort of human connection really brought out something which I've been thinking through the whole book and which I hadn't really thought about before, which is about um, it's the sight of British people and of Britain experiencing what people in war zones all over the world then and even more now experience all the time. It's the image of British refugees. And for all sorts of reasons to do with politics and economics and geography, we don't 
you know, that's not a part of our experience that anybody can really remember except evacuee kids in the war, I guess, actually. Um, but, you know, this sense of being totally torn from your rootings and totally kind of lost and uncertain about what the right thing is to do and really sort of traumatized by it. I think he did all of the uncertainty, but he didn't sketch the trauma of that, as I understand it. And, you know, fair enough. Like, it takes a visionary to understand something that you haven't experienced yourself. And he's a visionary in science, but I think fair to say not a visionary in emotion. Hmm. And um, didn't really achieve that kind of empathy. But I think if I were to... I think it would be really interesting if a film of this was made today... To, to do the kind of refugee experience, to, like, make it a depiction of what it feels like to be a refugee. Um, because I think that's something that people in the UK don't have very much inherited understanding of or often, I mean, for some people, find it difficult to really empathise with that. Hmm. Um, and so that was one thing where I was like, this is a really well-sketched war zone scenario, but in it, everybody is continuing to respond like... Victorian English stereotypes and mm. I'm just I'd love to have seen H.G. Wells dig a bit more into this emotion of it instead of just having it be like and at the end he held hands with his wife which was great because of marriage the mm. end well what are your thoughts do we get some from um, oh let's some from around the world here are some of uh, the reviews we've got mixture of ones that have been sent in and um, also I've, I've gleaned a few from uh, goodreads.com is quite good for this but um, so we always ask for a, a star rating between one and five stars and then just a few a few thoughts um, have to, most, of, most of the reviews that, that I've come across have been about four stars I think it probably hits around the, between four and five stars but um, I've got some one stars for you as well so <laughs> <laughs> I love that you can always find somebody that thought a classic was shite yeah, you can always find the one stars, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Tatiana gave it four stars and said, in between deadly heat rays, huge tripod machines striding around the country, killing everything in the path, and bloodthirsty Martians trying to take over Earth, starting with Great Britain, there's a critique of colonialism, religious hypocrisy, and even how humans treat animals. The way people react in a crisis is given just as much attention as the Martians' actions. So it's quite a good review. The, yeah, that's um, true. That's the, true. I'll, I'll, like I say, the emotional element was lacking for me in the way that people respond to things. Hmm. But then, you know, I'm a child of my time. I'm definitely not a Victorian Englishman. So, yeah, I enjoyed the focus on sort of the sort of mass panic and sort of the crowds of people trying to flee. And like you say, the the the, the painting, the picture of refugees in a backdrop of Victorian England. Yes. Um, yeah. Victorian Britain. Uh, yeah. Erica, well, f- England, Victorian Surrey, actually. To be <laughs> <Yeah>. honest, really, <laughs> not even the whole of England. Erica gave it four stars, and she just said, "Now I want to read anything and everything with extraterrestrials and watch more X Files." So, got her into <laughs> science fiction. Um, oh my jo- word! Joseph, four stars, short and sweet. I love the short and sweet reviews. Spoiler: anti-vaxxers lose. <laughs> satire <laughs> um, brilliant 
<laughs> Maria gave it five stars. She says, um, I couldn't put this book down. I was engrossed from the beginning until the final page. I read it in less than 24 hours. From my understanding, this is one of the first books written related to the invasion of Earth by aliens. I found myself in awe that this was written in the 1890s. The ideas were very advanced and new- unique. I do think that's one of the strengths of the book. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, really, yeah, really fascinating um, ideas, especially for the time it was written. Yeah, yeah, very, very much, and really interesting. I mean, I, I feel like I maybe I've been a hard, I've been a bit hard on it um, with this, like with it, kind of expecting it to be one of the books which followed in its own wake, if you mm. see what I mean. Yeah. Um, rather than acknowledging that it actually incredibly well for its time and place and for like breadth of ideas, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think the uh, the, the you, you can it can be a quite a quick quick read as well. It's one of those ones that you can sort of think, oh, I'll I'll get through that in a you know in a day or two or over a weekend. Absolutely, yeah, you enjoy yeah. it quickly. Um, okay, here come the one stars. Mary, Mary gave it one star. She Did said. She? Yes. She said, I really have no idea how this book is so popular. The characters are so weak. The narrator is nameless, flat and bland. There's practically no dialogue. What's that all about? Um, okay, so okay. <laughs> she didn't say that. Okay, so I guess what's happening... This is. I like this bit. Okay, so I guess what's happening is kind of interesting. UFOs, alien invasions, all that stuff. But it's all related in such a tremendously bland way. The War of the Worlds is a boring book one star that i first of all for shame for getting within touching distance of calling it the bore of the world and then not actually going all the way mary come on mate um secondly however i actually don't disagree with any of what she's saying there and i think the fact that we've given him such a rip in for his appalling dialogue for people who are not the same social class as him kind of tells us i think he recognized that he was really bad at it and was like right he's going to stay by himself for the rest of this plot not doing any more dialogue (laughs) fuck that and you know what acknowledge your weaknesses it's a very very good thing to do a very wise thing to do um i don't think any of that necessarily undermines it though it means that it's not the kind of book that i would like it to be i think there's more richness and depth to be got out of it and the way that you can tell that is that the genre of science fiction continues to exist (laughs) um you know built broadly on this and a couple of other classics olaf stapledon and people like that um but yeah like this is I, i i don't disagree with it but i don't think that's what it was trying to do um uh, I don't think I don't think those critiques are necessarily hitting it in any of its in any of the points where it wanted to be great. Yeah. Uh, Ken gave it one star. Ken gets into these reviews um, probably for this simple fact alone that he's I think he's twelve years old and he's called Ken. I can't believe I didn't know <laughs> anyone was called Ken under the age of fifty. But mate, <laughs> mate, sympathy and solidarity to you, Ken. I tell you. <laughs> but Ken says. 12 year old Ken says uh, I hated this book I would have to say it's one of the worst books I've ever read it was very confusing and hard to follow reading this in year 8 made it very hard to follow the old London language if I was to suggest this book to someone which I'm not (laughs) I'd have to say you need to be someone who enjoys sci-fi books and you're going to be able to understand all of the dated words so uh, it's such a it's such a sort of um, it's so familiar. Teenagers this, isn't it? review. 
Well, yeah. it's, so, it's so familiar in terms of when, when we do these reviews, um, if you have to read it for school, more often than not, it gets slapped with a one star. It's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hated it because I hate my teachers and my life. And like, that's not, I like, I've been there. I had to read this when I was 12 and I didn't engage with it terribly well. Um, yeah. And it's only now later in life that I'm actually sort of digging it precisely because I don't like having to understand to to separate people's character from their vocabulary like that's hard work to do and when I'm presented with Victorian novels certainly at that age when I was presented with Victorian novels I just remember being like why do I have to work so hard at this I hate all of this and fair enough you know I think it's your prerogative as a 13 year old to be lazy if you want um and and yeah, like yeah. I again, I can't argue with him there. I also think he is, you know, laboring through life under the insuperable burden of being called Ken and being <laughs> thirteen years old. So he's earned it. I think <laughs> Ken has earned it there. Um, Viv gave it one star. I got some interesting names this week. Um, yeah. She she said, uh, "I thought the book had too many difficult words, and the storyline was hard to follow. Overall, the book was a bore most of the time because the whole book was just cities getting attacked by Martians. City um, singular. It wasn't even that complicated. It wasn't two of them. It was one of them. <laughs> Suburbs really getting attacked by Martians is what this book is about. Yeah, I would say if I would say if." Um, if the idea of cities get, cities getting attacked or city getting attacked by Martians doesn't doesn't turn you on or doesn't sort of pique your interest, then you're probably not going to enjoy the book. <laughs> <laughs> probably don't read a book called War of the Worlds. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, Paul gave it one stars, and this is an intriguing review, which I would love. I'd, I wish he'd put more, but he only gave it a couple <laughs> of lines. All Paul says is, "I had a bad experience with this book." To say it was a struggle and that I suffered is all I want to say on the matter. That's it. <laughs> did, did, he, did he try and eat it? <laughs> like, what, what was the problem precisely? Yeah, it sounds a bit like the book abused him, and I don't know how it happened, but Paul... <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, nobody's, nobody's making you read it, man. Like, just, yeah. it's okay, you can step away from it. That's all right. It's going to be okay, was- don't worry. It was a struggle, and I suffered, and it's all I want to say. <laughs> that's all. That's, that's all I've got to say about that. And fair enough, Paul. Fair enough. <laughs> it's all I want to say on the matter. It's all I want to say, Dave. All right. <laughs> don't stop asking. Don't look at me with your face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why did one of the worlds touch you? Show me on this doll. Oh. <laughs> 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 dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> Tut indeed. Uh, finally, Daniel. The final review. Daniel gave it five stars. And uh, he says, Smartly written, giving a really realistic account of a possible invasion by an inter-terrestrial... Ter- Let me start again. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel's review contains too many hard words for me. Um, <laughs> hang on a minute. I don't think he's. I oh know. No, in my defence, he spelt it wrong. Okay. <laughs> Daniel gave it five stars. Smartly written, giving a really realistic account of a possible invasion by an interstellar intelligence. A bit slow moving at times, and sometimes a bit hard to understand since it was written for people of the 1890s. But still, quite clear why it became a classic. And the ending is also terrific and ironic. I liked it. Not to mention the book is ten times better than any movie that exists. Hmm. What? 
of the book or of any movie that's ever... Because <laughs> I think putting it up against Citizen Kane is probably a bit much. Hmm. Well, I think he probably means any movie, you know, adaptation. And we will get to that next week just to yeah. see if, uh, if that is true. But, uh, yeah, that's the final review. And uh, thank you very much for taking this journey with us. Dave, what are your final thoughts on the book? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's one of these things, like I say, it's the seed of so many fantastic things in the future. And as I, because I am an appreciator of those things, I am an appreciator of this. It's got its weaknesses, for sure. But um, I think the, the sheer richness of the ideas that it wants to play around with, even though it plays around with us in an incredibly pompous and occasionally unself-aware way, just make it so worth engaging with. Um, yeah, it is It is great. It is written in an old style. It certainly betrays the age in which it was written, but it has a good deal more self-critical ability than most other works of fiction from that age. And for that reason alone, I think I, I really appreciate it. But it's it's the legacy that makes it great, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I was always going to because it's always a bit of a nostalgia trip for me, War of the Worlds, just because um, how I used to always listen to the, the soundtrack to it when I was when I was really little. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a great tale. And I do, yeah, I, I do think it's a nice change from, um, like I say, it's very light on dialogue. And I, I like the way it's told in almost this, it's this, like horrific events told in this such a matter of fact way um and you no know, it's it's a really great read and uh i have to say yeah i really enjoyed it i think i'd have stuck a five star on top of it myself yeah um yeah oh, that's interesting i think i would go five for a, three and a half five. if i was feeling stingy four i think if i was being fair there we go and that's the definitive <laughs> that's the word that's the definitive word from us on it um, we will return to the War of the Worlds next week just to look at some of the um, adaptations. Um, some of the more famous ones, of course, the the film with Tom Cruise in. There was the uh, I've had two goes in it now. The sound, uh, the music, musical version, and there's also uh, one or two other bits and pieces, and some exciting extra news um, about War of the Worlds, which uh, I will reveal next week. That's got it. That's got to be the inside track to, to the to the estate of HG Wells. Have you? I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I will say no more at this time. It's all I want to say on the matter, in the words of Paul. <laughs> <laughs> this time, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I <laughs> uh, hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't a struggle for you. Hope you didn't suffer. And uh, if there's anything else you want to say in the matter, yeah, do uh, email sharkliveralpodcast at gmail.com. But until next week, see you then. See you later.